First and Second Samuel, can you hear me now? Excellent. In First and Second Samuel, on David's life with God, and uh, some of the reason behind that is we have a lot of time in the summer to really get engrossed in stories. Another reason behind that is if we're not careful, we won't spend a whole lot of time in the Old Testament as Christians. And so I think a little bit of time there, uh, sitting there and, and understanding and trying to understand not just the text, but that world uh, really does as well. David is perhaps one of the most important characters in the Bible. I think many of us have, as kids have heard David's stories, right? David slaying Goliath, David playing tunes and writing psalms, David dancing before the Lord. We know more about David than almost any other character in the Bible. But let's be careful um, as we learn about David, because David is no flat hero. David's story with God is not some cowboy movie. There's not people walking around with a white hat or a black hat, purely good guys that were supposed to have loyalty and sympathy and admiration and whom we're supposed to imitate. And there's no purely bad ones in these stories. Like, I, when I think of that, I think of like the two-dimensional cutouts of cat burglars that pop out at a shooting range. Like, that's the quintessential all bad guy. There's not a whole lot of those here. There's not a lot of characters whom, whose sole purpose in these stories is just to be mown down. No, the story of David's life with God is complex, as lives with God tend to be. It's textured, it's complicated, it's real. David's story is a, is a human story. I coined our series title after a line that some of you might recognize from a famous Leonard Cohen song. It's a song that speaks of David's and other, uh, it's a song that speaks of David's uh, secret chord that pleased the Lord, but also other characters um, who experience these, these rises and these falls in their life with God. So that's kind of the goal, is to, is to enter into these stories in a way that, that we f can form our triumphant, but even sometimes our own broken hallelujahs. Um, to the Lord, learning from these stories and, and kind of grafting our stories in there. We'll find um, in, that, in the messy kind of complication of trying to follow God that, that maybe we can learn a little bit more how to, how to be formed as men and women after God's own heart, which is a, a big descriptor of David. So I want to invite Jer Jeremiah to come up and read our passage from 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to grieve over Saul? I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and get going. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have found my next king among his sons. How can I do that, Samuel asked. When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say, I have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. 
and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will make clear to you what you should do. You will anoint for me the person I point out to you. Samuel did what the Lord instructed. When he came to Bethlehem, the city elders came to meet him. They were shaking with fear. Do you come in peace, they asked. Yes, Samuel answered. I've come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Now make yourselves holy, then come with me to the sacrifice. Samuel made Jesse and his sons holy and invited them to the sacrifice as well. When they arrived, Samuel took Eliab and thought, that must be the Lord's anointed right in front. But the Lord said to Samuel, I have no regard for his appearance or stature because I haven't selected him. God doesn't look at things like humans do. Humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. Next, Jesse called for Abinadab, who presented himself to Samuel. He said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. So Jesse presented Shema, but Samuel said, no, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. Jesse presented seven of his sons to Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord hasn't picked any of these. Then Samuel asked Jesse, is that all of your boys? They're still the youngest one, Jesse answered, but he's out keeping the sheep. Send for him, Samuel told Jesse, because he can't proceed until, we can't proceed until he gets here. So Jesse sent and brought him in. He was reddish brown, had beautiful eyes, and was good looking. The Lord said, that's the one, go anoint him. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him right there in front of his brothers. The Lord's spirit came over David from that point forward. Then Samuel left and went to Ramah. Word of the Lord. So I hope that in learning about King David this summer and hearing his story that will be pointed towards King Jesus, great David's greater son. That the minor falls and major lifts of this plotline in many ways, uh, in the many ways the characters and even the protagonist gets it wrong, that we'll see and examine in ourselves that deep yearning for a true king, to someone who can really do this job, that will, that will have this hunger and thirst for God's kingdom, for a kingdom that will last. So speaking of kings, and I'd invite you to, if you can find a pew Bible, it might be good, because we're going to backtrack a little bit in the story, because we jumped in kind of in the middle. Before we get to David, we need a little context in the 15 chapters up until now. To know David, we have to know Saul. And to know Saul, we have to know Samuel. And to know Samuel, we have to know Samuel's mom, Hannah. And that's kind of how the Bible works. So beware jumping in in the New Testament because you might have to read the previous 500 pages as well. If you flip back into your, in your pew Bibles to the beginning of 1 Samuel, we find a man named Elkanah with two wives. You find a lot of pairs in Bible stories, specifically used to show contrast, right? All Hannah wants is a child. All she gets is taunted by her sister wife who seems to only be able to have kids. Her husband condescends her and just doesn't understand the sort of pain, the sort of longing that she bears. So she goes over and over and over to the place of worship and pleads with God. What if that's how we dealt with our disappointments, with our fears, with our anxieties? 
She's a downright mess before God. So much so that Eli, the old priest, thinks she shows up to worship wasted. That's another theme in scripture. When people are really communing with God, it's so potent that they think there's spirits, not the spirit, but spirits happening. Once that gets cleared up, she's sent by Eli with a blessing. And in the course of time, that's a, a pregnant phrase right there, in the course of time, not quite overnight, she'll bear a son, a son whom she'll make good on the promise to dedicate completely to the Lord. And this gift ignites her into song. It's a song of reversal. It's kind of a, it's kind of a subversive song. Mighty warriors are disarmed. The weak receive power. The fat and happy switch places with the hungry. The barren woman now has seven kids. Imagine that change of lifestyle. And I think that's kind of a rhetorical effect, right? Uh, I don't know how much of a blessing seven kids from zero would be. The low are brought high and vice versa. And the, the poor are made rich and vice versa. Her song closes with the acclamation, may God give strength to his king and raise high the strength of his anointed one. The story then twists a little bit. Eli, that priest that she came to, his sons who are going to be the next priest in line become so corrupt that God calls an audible, like literally an audible call to Samuel in his sleep telling him that he needs to go to Eli and that the Lord wants Samuel to step in and re replace these unfaithful sons as prophet and priest for Israel. The story continues and takes a lot of twists and turns as Israel battles a Philistine army in God's chest, this tangible ark of the covenant that God made with his people winds up getting used as a, a good luck charm in battle. Don't we do that? Don't we instrumentalize God? Don't we turn a viable living relationship with him into some sort of talisman so that we can win? So that God's on our side? The irony, once again, is that the ark is captured by the Philistines and God's presence and God's freedom is seemingly taken a lot more seriously by the Philistines and it is by Israel. You'll see that recurring theme also in scripture that God's people's faithfulness is often quote unquote judged by those who don't even know God or even oppose God. Somehow our familiarity with God can, can breed unawareness, unfamiliarity, unfaithfulness. Be careful. Finally, Samuel is old, and like Eli, his sons aren't fit to follow him as Israel's judge. So God's people look for a succession plan. They ask Samuel for a king. And keep in mind, king was always God's job for God's people. God is their king. This proposal would wreck would represent a new arrangement. So Samuel's nervous. <laughs> he knows enough to know 
that in some sense this would depose God. You can't have two kings. Isn't that how it goes? We just even in our individual lives consistently make choices for kind of sandcastle kingdoms instead of the unshakable kingdom of God that we'd opt for what we can't see for this or we'd opt for what we can see this devil that we know over the uncertainty of following and obeying and trusting and going somewhere unfamiliar and unstable with a God that reigns and rules so what do you think God does at this point well God takes that proposal like a, a broken hearted parent must do sometimes he gives his children exactly what they want even though they're making a choice that might drive a wedge in between them as I read I wonder if this isn't sort of a gesture towards the story that Jesus tells about two sons another pair and one of those sons makes a choice to grab his inheritance early and the father lets him make that destructive choice lets him go into the far country lets him go his own way only to emancipate himself into the gutter Israel's desire for a king also flows out of another desire, the desire to blend in, to imitate. They want to be like the other nations. They look around and see what everyone else is doing. For all the criticism that God's people get, you'll read in, in the Old Testament in particular, and it call, uh, the prophets call Israel stiff-necked people. And, and I always think that like with the neck brace like this, and you think if they were stiff-necked people, they wouldn't be so apt at looking around at all the other nations and with their heads on, seemingly on a swivel, figuring out what they're doing and trying to operate that way. Trying, instead of being blessed to be a blessing, trying to, to be like their neighbors. They're taking notes. They're admiring the seeming success, the seeming security of the nations. They lust after the ways their enemies and their neighbors seem more efficient, the ways they seem more in control. Isn't this also our temptation sometimes? To want something good, something that'll stabilize us, to want something good that's not God? That's a key difference here we crane our necks at some other way than God's way we we build walls and trust in the strength and might of war horses rather than trust in the knowledge and care of the Lord the hospitality of God so God lets them he lets them build sandcastles he lets them settle for less the rest of Israel's history details this roller coaster ride of trusting in kings that ultimately disappoint, that ultimately fail them. It sounds kind of like the waxing and waning hope and disappointment the U.S. puts in our presidents, right? This it's just cyclical cycle of, of maybe it'll be better this time. Israel shifts also between good kings who look to the Lord and bad ones who don't or can't. 
And in King David, we find Israel's king, in some ways, Israel's king par excellence, but we still find him falling short of God's glory. We still find him woefully underfilling the shoes of king that God fills. This is the bargain that God's people made with God. So God decides to give them this sad gift of a king. Has God ever given you exactly what you wanted and then you regretted that? <laughs> you regretted asking? Sorry if this further complicates. I know like we have so many people in this community that are in like transitional times of their life and everyone is trying, at least if you're paying attention, trying to track what God wants you to do, where he wants you to go, who he wants you to be with, what he wants you to do with your life. And this complicates God's will in your life because we like to assume that God, you know, opens a door and closes windows and whatever. But if it's true that God gives gifts that might not even be the best thing for us because we ask him for them, that means our prayers need to be better and more yielded, more reliant on him. If he's that generous to us, that he'll even answer bad prayers. Maybe growing in the spirit, maybe becoming more like Christ means that we need better prayers. And that happens only just by doing it, only just by asking God, only by becoming more and more like the Christ who prays in Gethsemane before he takes his cross, not my will, but your will be done. Actually becoming the sort of person whose prayers align with who God is and what God's like. I can't wait until my kids start asking for Christmas presents that I actually want to give them, <laughs> you know? Like, that's a little sidebar. But until then, I will delight in delighting them. But if in 30 years they're still asking for princess gear and toy trucks, I will be a little disappointed, or at least a little curious. <laughs> so we're almost to David <laughs> in this series about David. But before David, we need to meet Saul. No, not that Saul. When I was telling Noah about this, she's like, oh, Saul was mean, and then he became nice. No, not that Saul. The first time we, we meet Saul, out of nowhere, the main description we get is that he's from a wealthy, prestigious family, and that he's super handsome, and that he's towering. He's head and shoulders above anyone else. Saul had the resume, he had the looks, he had the chops. If Israel was going to have a king, Israel was going to have a king that looked like Saul. Once Samuel anoints Saul, we get this really strange story about the spirit of the Lord coming upon Saul and, and sending him into some strange prophetic frenzy. And, and Samuel says, no, don't worry, it's going to happen, and it will make you a completely different person. Strange how even though Saul passed everyone's, including Samuel's, eye test, the Lord was going to have to do some pretty dramatic tailoring work to make Saul a suitable fit to be Israel's king. 
Have you ever been in a season in your life when it felt like the Lord was just like gently or otherwise just dismantling you, like taking you apart, making you an entirely different person because the things you liked about yourself were getting in the way of the person that the Lord wanted you to be, to be used, wanted you to become. I'm thinking like maybe like one of the things you like about your personality so much is your sarcastic wit. And then you start to realize that that sarcastic wit is the very smoke screen that you put up to keep people at a distance or it breeds some sort of ugly cynicism that's just right under the surface. Don't get me wrong, I like sarcasm. Or maybe it's your looks. Maybe, maybe you finally realize that the way you look, <laughs> the, the way your body looks is it's just some sort of, of, of anxiety, some sort of self-hatred that spills over into bad relationships that you form. Or maybe it's your smarts, something that lets you coast by and, and gives you a cozy feeling that you're, that you're a little better or got things a little more figured out. But really, it's just a fear that you don't really know what's going on and maybe someone is going to expose you. What if rather than reinforcing these strengths, God's transformation in your life is going to mean seeing those things as weaknesses, as barriers? Another guy formerly known as Saul in the Bible certainly advocates for this sort of process. In the letter to the Philippians, he says, These things that were once my assets, I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. Over the course of the story, we repeatedly find Saul just not quite fitting. He doesn't know how to be strong and emphatic at the right times and about the right things or when to be merciful and discerning and kind of slow. He just doesn't quite get it. He fails and he flails at being Israel's pastor in chief. He forgets to ask God. He forgets to thank God. And above all, he forgets to worship God. As a sidebar, perhaps we live in a, a kind of a post-Saul world that we don't even expect this about our leaders. And I'm not even talking about like big scale leaders. I'm talking about church leaders and ministry leaders. We don't expect that they would be the type of person that would ask God, that would seek God, that would worship God first and foremost. So So Saul becomes this kind of paper tiger, this like fake, uh, on paper looks good, this facade of a perfect king. The one who'd be cast for the role of Israel's king if if there was some summer blockbuster written about the life of David, like a Jerry Bruckheimer movie about David, Saul would be like Russell Crowe, right? Like that's, that's how these movies get made. And Saul, despite apparently being perfect, Saul gets fired. Then the Lord's word came to Samuel. And the Lord said, I regret making Saul king because he's turned away from following me and he hasn't done what I've said. 
Does this bother any of you guys? That God regrets making Saul king? While it troubles me a little, it's also pretty crazy how much agency and hope God had in Saul. We get the, the sense that all Saul had to do was worship God and listen. That Saul's success in God's eyes was tied directly to his ability to keep God on his dashboard and to ride the wave of God's activity and mission and presence with his people. Aside from looking good, Saul actually had some decent stats in his favor. There was a performance review. It wasn't because he wasn't defeating Israel's enemies. He, he was keeping his people safe. He was steering them towards prosperity. But because he led out of the strength of his stature, the strength of his reputation, he led from success towards success. Strangely enough, Saul might have actually been an answer to Hannah's prayer, it, it, weirdly as that sounds. Kind of the tail end of Samuel's mom's song that God might trim down someone head and shoulders above everyone else. Enter David. Finally a David. Thanks for hanging in. Samuel is sent to Bethlehem to Jesse's house to find the next king. We find Jesse's sons are lined up in this sort of like cattle call, this primitive presidential debate, right? All these characters lined up. And in recent years in presidential debates, this is really fascinating. In the last hundred years, tall candidates are like statistically significantly better in, in presidential elections. So of course, Jesse comes to the first son, the oldest son, Eliab, the oldest and no doubt the tallest and strongest. And Samuel seems not to have learned a whole lot about the whole Saul debacle. He's getting ready to crown Eliab and wrap up the trip. And the Lord speaks to Samuel. We talked about having like uh, God's voice come down from the choir loft up there. But, uh, and this is, what, this is what the Lord says. Have no regard for his appearance or stature. Because I haven't selected him. God doesn't look at things like humans do. Humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. Do any of you feel a little bad for Samuel here? <laughs> like, is he supposed to have this divine sixth sense that he can see these intangibles in Jesse's sons? He looks around after that, and I can imagine he's not going to make that mistake again, right? So he tosses the rest out, kind of offhand. Not that one, no, not that one, not that one. And before asking Jesse, um, and then he, he asks Jesse if he's holding out any sons on him. And Jesse replies, there's still the youngest one. He's out keeping sheep. That's shorthand for, I didn't think I'd bother wasting anyone's time bringing David to this lineup. He's doing kind of that rangy, busy work of shepherding, like the sort of job where you can have a guitar 
on, like on hand and write songs while you're doing it. Like I, all these music, musicians I know have worked at this one coffee shop in in Chapel Hill, like on UNC's campus, and that's what I kind of imagine. It's like what kind of job is this that it's so attractive for this very subset type of person who's very prolific in their songwriting. The next details we get are great though. When Samuel lays eyes on Jesse's youngest son, here's what he sees. David is tan, has beautiful eyes, and was handsome, right? These are great details because they tell us a couple things unlike Saul David's not particularly big or particularly strong in fact later on we'll find he's kind of compact he's a he's a small guy and unlike Saul David isn't first but he's last in his family he subverts kind of an audience's expectation on who might be fit uh, for to be a king but the second thing, though, about these details, I think it's really remarkable. The one that God chooses, this David, is not disqualified for his positive features. That'd be too easy. That would let us tell God who to pick and only shoot for someone completely opposite of, of Saul. To try to make a principle or a program out of God's vision and plan rather than to just ask God what God wants and being willing to be surprised by what God says. Our God is way too free to be constrained by what we think. Wasn't that Saul's downfall after all by trying to predict and perform what God might want? or just ignore it altogether. Even Samuel, who acted as God's prophet and priest, can hardly keep up with where God is going with this whole thing. So David is tan and handsome and has beautiful eyes. The Bible, the Bible is so awesome for those details. It's great. While eventually Goliath even mocks David for these very positive attributes, like, uh, my like Hebrew Aramaic isn't very good, but I think what David basically calls him is a pretty boy, um, and we'll get there in a couple weeks. There's a charm to David, though. There's a tenderness. There's a, a vulnerability. There's a, a beautiful potential for his vision. These are the, the same eyes, these beautiful eyes. These are the same eyes that have been surveying his father's field for his father's flocks, and now they're going to watch over God the Father's flock. Like, that's his new job. David is no paper tiger. He's no imposing presence. He's not a, his statue is, statute is, uh, stature is not inspiring. But it's exactly this boy when he is anointed, when God's spirit falls upon him, that's going to start to point what what a, a real king looks like. It's with these considerations of this story, God's hesitant willingness to let his people choose to elect someone else to do what only God can do. The ways that strength and stature in the eye test can sometimes be the exact wrong indicators for faithfulness. And God's 
dogged freedom to pick the least, the last, the littlest, and the closest to death to establish his purposes. That point to a greater king. I think we're to, to walk away from this story so far a little frustrated that being king is a doomed task. I feel a little sorry for Saul. I feel a little anxious for David. But even more so, I think we're to walk away from the story and we're to ask, what does the real king look like? Who could really do this job? What if God's thoughts that are high above our thoughts and his ways that are high above our ways are actually lower, actually deeper, actually more humble? What if God's eyes, you know, the ones that see the outward in a way that neither qualifies or disqualifies someone, what if those eyes point towards a king who possessed no splendid form for us to see? This is Isaiah 53. No desirable appearance. This king was despised and avoided by others, a man who suffered, who knew sickness well, like someone from whom people hid their faces. He was despised and we didn't think about him. This king that was, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, a slave, being made in human likeness. He humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. What if that's what a king looks like? What if this king and his kingdom sound like an echo of Hannah's song? Or maybe Mary's remix of Hannah's song. This is Mary now. Notice how similar these songs sound. He's pulled the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He's come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy. What if this king was anointed and filled with God's spirit to preach the good news to the poor, release uh, the prisoners, re recovery of sight to the blind, liberation to the oppressed, and jubilee? What if in this king there was zero space between the, his reign and rule and God's reign and rule? Like, that's the story in the story of Israel's kings, is this just inherent gap, this space between even what a great king like David can do and then what God has done and will do for his people. What if this, this king that we're longing for, that we're groaning towards, what if that king's goal was to eliminate also the space between heaven and earth, praying and bringing about the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I pray as we continue to study this summer, and I hope you'll read along. If you go on the website, there's a, kind of a reading list by week um, that you can get to. I hope as we, we, we read, I pray that we seek and that we find and that we worship and serve this King Jesus that this whole story points towards. That we're called into this unfolding story of Christ's reign and rule that will join the anointing spirit as he sends us, as he, 
is he calls us. He says, once you weren't a people, now you're a people. And he calls us a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to God. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this story. I thank you that you teach us in story. Not just in bullet points or presentations, but in, in lives, in plot twists that we, we don't expect, in, in, in tragedy and in comedy. I thank you that um, as we become more aware of the ways that we view our stories and the stories that we tell, that, that we can, there's still time, there's still room uh, for us to join our story to you. Uh, Lord, we, we pray that you be that main character that, that, that guides and dictates um, where we're going and, and how we get to read even the awful things in our past, even the hard things that seem impossible in our present, even the completely uncertain things about our future. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who is David's, David's greater son. Uh, David's, the, the type of king David should have been, but couldn't be. Lord, give us eyes and ears and imaginations to, to live in this kingdom that's already begun, this kingdom that'll keep coming. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.